Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Today we're going to be discussing what is enlightenment or what is Nibbana. This is a topic that's really important to understand as you're either starting the path or wherever you are in the path because in order to reach a certain goal, which enlightenment and Nibbana is the goal, it's important to understand what that goal is because the more clear that you can understand the goal of what is Nibbana or what is in, uh, enlightenment, the more ability you'll have to work towards that goal. So let's discuss what is Nibbana before we really embark on this real journey of awakening the mind to this mental state of enlightenment or Nibbana. As I just mentioned, enlightenment or Nibbana is a mental state. It's a mental state that can be accomplished through training of the mind. The mind needs training in order to eliminate things such as sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, guilt, fears, shame. All of these feelings that I would describe as discontent. Nibbana is the goal of the teachings of Gautama Buddha. I use the word Nibbana because this is the Pali language in the largest collection of Gautama Buddha's teachings, his original teachings are captured in the Pali language. However, you might be more familiar with this word being used as nirvana. This is the Sanskrit language. In English, we use the word enlightenment, but all of these things are essentially referring to the same thing, which is this permanent mental state that can be accomplished through learning and practicing the teachings of Gautama Buddha. And remember, from our previous talks that in order to attain this mental state, it's important that you don't have any belief in this practice or in these teachings because belief is not going to liberate the mind with wisdom in order to attain this mental state. In order to attain this mental state, you need guidance from teachers so that you can independently observe the teachings and practice, but through that guidance and you independently observing the truth for yourself, the mind acquires more and more wisdom in which it then starts to function through as it performs daily tasks or does certain things. Rather than reacting in situations, the mind is trained to respond in situations. And when we respond, we can do so in a much better capacity, much better ability. With the mind being in the middle, we're less likely to uh, create unwholesome gamma for ourselves. An unwholesome gamma can be created by having irritation or frustration or uh, having poor speech or certain actions that cause harm to other people. And if we've trained the mind well enough, we'll be able to 
acquire this mental state of nibbana where the mind is permanently peaceful, permanently calm, permanently serene, permanently content, and with joy. In other words, the mind never experiences sadness, never experiences frustration or irritation or guilt or shame or boredom or loneliness, all of these discontent feelings, but the mind needs training in order to get there. And this is one of the ways that you know that you're progressing on the path because the more that you learn about the path, the more that you observe the truth and acquire wisdom, what you'll notice is certain things that at one time made you angry, all of a sudden as you progress, on the path, you may feel frustration or irritation or annoyance. And eventually you'll get to a point where you've been practicing so well that certain things can happen to you that you don't even feel the rise of any kind of discontent feelings whatsoever. And as you do this with repeated situation after situation, relationship after relationship, conversation after conversation, you can permanently move the mind to this mental state of nibbana or enlightenment. It takes time, it takes practice, and it takes a lot of dedication and commitment. But with dedication and commitment and the teachings and having guidance, everybody can attain this mental state. Whether you're a male, a female, whether you're ordained or unordained, whatever label that someone might assign to you in terms of your race or sexual orientation or anything. None of that has anything to do with whether you're able to attain this mental state of Nibbana. So eliminating anger and sadness and frustration and irritation and boredom and loneliness, it's not dependent on what your sexual orientation is. It's not dependent on what gender you are. It's not dependent on whether you wear a robe or you live a household life. So everybody can work towards this mental state of attaining Nibbana. And next week in our talk on chapter four, when we start with the Four Noble Truths, that's where we really get started with Gautama Buddha's teachings, helping you understand why the mind is discontent and how to eliminate it. And as we talk next week, I will share with you piece by piece his teachings in a way that you can look at them and observe the truth for yourself so that you don't need to believe anything, but you can see the truth for yourself and then learn how to practice these teachings each week as we go forward piece by piece. Now, in order to attain Nibbana, a person would need to work to eliminate what we call greed, hatred, and delusion, or craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. These are the three poisons. We're going to discuss these when we get to chapter eight. We're going to talk about them in detail and talk about the remedies to these. So one would need to eliminate the three poisons. One would need to eliminate the concept of a self. We need to dissolve the ego as well. Gautama Buddha gave very specific teachings in the 10 fetters, which we'll cover today. In the 10 fetters, he essentially gives you very specific details of what he described as the taints or the unpure qualities of the mind. What a fetter is, is a fetter is kind of like a ball and chain 
wrapped around your leg and kind of binding you into a situation. And they're called the 10 fetters because these are the 10 impure qualities of the mind that keep us in the cycle of rebirth. Through moving the mind closer and closer to Nibbana and establishing the mind in Nibbana, one would then have the truth for themselves because they would see that they're no longer getting angry, they're no longer frustrated, they're no longer bored, lonely, they're no longer shy, they're no longer feeling guilt or shame, any of these discontent feelings. This is how you will know the truth for yourself that these teachings are slowly, gradually progressing you on the path because you can see the truth for yourself. And as you work towards eliminating these 10 fetters, you will see that the mind becomes more clear, more concentrated, more focused, you'll have better memory, and you'll have more ability to just exist in the present moment with peacefulness, with calmness, with serenity, with contentness, and with joy. So let's go through the 10 fetters and discuss those in detail. Here we're in chapter three of the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. Let's focus on the 10 fetters today because this is really what someone needs to focus on in order to attain Nibbana. And there's a lot of other teachings that you need in order to work your way towards the 10 fetters, but ultimately what everybody's doing in order to work to this mental state of Nibbana where there's complete peace of mind, complete contentedness, is working to eliminate these 10 fetters. And the 10 fetters are organized into four stages of enlightenment. In English, we call these stages stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and then arahant. There's no kind of English translation for that stage. When we say someone has attained enlightenment or they have attained nibbana, we're talking about someone who has attained the highest stage of enlightenment of arahant. The other stages of enlightenment, stream enterer, once returner, and non-returner, these are lower stages of enlightenment where someone still is experiencing certain qualities of enlightenment, but they still are not what we would say are enlightened or having attained nibbana. In these lower stages of enlightenment, the person is still gonna experience discontentedness. It's not until you reach the stage of arahant where all discontentness is completely eliminated. The first stage of enlightenment, the stream enterer, this is the very first stage. And prior to getting to this stage of enlightenment, someone will have experienced what we call the four jhanas or four levels of concentration, of bliss, of meditative states where you'll experience the mind having certain qualities of peacefulness, of calmness. I call this someone whose mind is aware. When you start hitting these jhanas, the mind is aware. A lot of times people can feel that they're actually enlightened when they actually hit one of these jhanas because there's such bliss. There's such a great amount of happiness and you feel it in the mind. A lot of times people feel that they're already fully awake and they're already enlightened and they get somewhat complacent in these lower jhanas. But these jhanas are temporary. They're not meant to be a permanent place for the mind to reside and it can't reside there permanently. So rather than feeling complacent, 
someone who's very wise would not even try to figure out what jhana they're in or if they've even hit the jhanas. They're just going to focus on the 10 fetters and continue to work towards that goal of arahant. And these four jhanas in the four stages of enlightenment, as I talk about them here, they're not a badge. They're not a certificate. It's not something that people go around and compare themselves to each other because all of this guidance that I'm going to share with you today, it's all about a personal journey. It's all about you using this information that I'm sharing with you in order to help guide you along the path and help you understand what you need to focus on next. If you're going around and discussing with people that, yes, I've hit this jhana or I'm at this stage of enlightenment or I'm a stream enter, I'm a once returner. This is the biggest indication to know that somebody hasn't attained anything at all, because in order to pursue this path, one of the major goals and one of the major obstacles is the ego and we need to dissolve the ego. So if somebody is walking around and telling you that they've attained a jhana or they've attained a certain stage of enlightenment, you can be sure that they most likely haven't because there's still ego there. There's still the desire, the craving of wanting to tell everybody what they've accomplished. Well, if you've ever dived into any books or done any studying on enlightenment or nibbana, what people often say is before enlightenment, you know, chop wood. After enlightenment, chop wood. No big deal. Your pursuit to enlightenment should be your pursuit. It doesn't need to involve you going around and telling lots and lots of people of what you've attained and what you haven't attained because that's the surest way for people to know that you haven't attained anything. So someone who's attained Nibbana wouldn't even tell you that they've attained it. You, the more you understand about Nibbana, the more you understand about these 10 fetters, you should be able to observe in other people whether they've actually attained it or not. And quite honestly, a self-profession or self-analysis uh, of whether you have or haven't attained Nibbana is fraught with errors. Just like a doctor wouldn't self-prescribe themselves or self-diagnose themselves, a practitioner should never try to self-diagnose where they are in the four jhanas or in the four stages of enlightenment. Teachers can probably help, but honestly, teachers are less interested in telling you where you are and more interested in helping you see what needs to be eliminated so that you can continue on this path. Because none of these four jhanas and none of these lower three stages of enlightenment are meant to be permanent. The only thing that's permanent is the highest stage of enlightenment, which is the stage of Arahant. So as you're progressing along this path and you understand the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, you're practicing these for extended periods of time, you understand the natural law of Gamma and a lot of these other things, the Three Poisons, you're, through your meditation, you're going to eventually break through to the jhanas, one of the four jhanas, and you're going to progress through these four jhanas. And you tend to kind of know that because there's a lot of bliss and there's a lot of awareness of the suffering of other beings around you. And there's a lot of awareness of all the horrible things that are going on in the world, 
all the suffering and all the discontentness of other people. So if you're starting to kind of clue in on this and noticing how the whole world seems to almost be doomed, the whole world is, is just headed in a horrible direction, then your mind is already starting to become aware that the world is causing its own problems, but we can solve our own problems. So as you're hitting these four jhanas, you're gonna get closer and closer to the first stage of enlightenment, which is called stream enterer. In order to attain this stage of enlightenment, one would need to eliminate the first fetter, which is personal existence view, as well as the second and third fetter, which is doubt about the teachings and wrong grasp of behavior and observances. Let's talk about what these three fetters are. What the personal existence view is talking about is it's talking about this concept of a self that is held in the mind. We're gonna talk about this next week in more detail. We're gonna discuss it and talk about how you can work to start eliminating it. This concept of a self that exists in the mind, you need to eliminate this. In order to eliminate it, you need to first understand it intellectually and then learn how to move that into practice so that you can start dissolving the personal existence view, essentially eliminating this personal existence view, which involves the ego. So that's the first fetter, is dissolving or eliminating the personal existence view, realizing non-self. The second fetter is doubt about the teachings. Now, when you first start this path, there's going to be plenty of doubts about the teachings. But the more that you learn the teachings, the more that you observe them as truth for yourself with guidance of teachers, and you see more and more and more that the Buddhist teachings are indeed truth, and you gain the wisdom of that, over time, you start to erode this doubt that you may hold about the teachings. It's not a matter of either it's on or it's off, but as you progress through this path and you learn the teachings more and more, you will slowly need to erode this doubt. Any doubt you have about the Buddhist teachings that they somehow don't lead to enlightenment. So you need to eliminate that. And it's each person's individual path to do that. And there's different ways of doing that. And the best way that I feel to do that is the more you learn about the teachings and you observe them to be truth for yourself, the more wisdom you gain around the teachings, you will have no doubt as your mind is moving from anger to frustration to annoyance to a slight dislike to, wow, I feel nothing at all. When that happened, you know, two months ago, I would have been so angry with that situation, but now I feel nothing. So over time in multiple situations and relationships and conversations, the more you learn about the Buddhist teachings, you will erode any doubt that you have about his teachings that they're actually leading to this mental state of enlightenment or Nibbana. The third fetter is what we call wrong grasp of behavior or observances. These three fetters are what's needed to eliminate these taints and attain the mental state of stream enterer. What wrong grasp of behavior and observances is, this is the belief or the uh, 
the feeling that rites, rituals, and ceremonies are what's needed in order to attain enlightenment or nibbana. If you feel that by worshiping a statue, by getting a string tied on your wrist, by getting some water sprinkled on you from a monk, uh, if you have these feelings that if you say a certain chant in a certain way, if you hit a bell a certain way, if you position a statue a certain way, if you bow a certain number of times, if you say a mantra in a certain way, if you have these types of wrong grasp of behaviors and observances and you think that those things are what leads to Nibbana, then those would be wrong grasp of behavior and observances. Essentially, what the Buddha was teaching is these things don't change the condition of the mind. By just getting a string tied on my wrist, it's not changing the condition of my mind. Now, it doesn't mean that that's wrong because somebody might do that as a way to remind themselves to practice the Buddhist teachings. And this is why we don't make judgment about how people practice. You can have two people come into a space and both of them bow to a statue of the Buddha and you can ask one of them, I'm just curious, what are you doing? And one person could say, oh, the spirit of the Buddha is in that statue and if I worship that statue, the spirit of the Buddha is gonna give me enlightenment. Well, this is wrong grasp of behaviors and observances. As long as that person holds on to that, they won't attain uh, enlightenment, even the first stage. But you can see another person bowing to a statue and you can ask them, I'm just curious, what are you doing? And they say, oh, well, I have deep respect and gratitude for Gautama Buddha's teachings and I come here to bow to his statue in order to show my respect and my gratitude and as a way for me to empty my ego. Now this person is understanding the practice and they're working on practicing in a way that helps them to attain enlightenment. So this is why we don't judge people who do get a string or who do these other things because they might be using them for certain purposes that only they understand. And this is why your practice is your practice, my practice is my practice, and everybody has their own individual practice. Gautama Buddha's teachings are all the same, and if you understand them, they will lead to enlightenment. But how those teachings look in practice for each individual is all gonna be dependent on that individual in their mind and how they're choosing to practice. So this is one of the reasons why we don't judge other people and what they do or don't do. It's not about everybody doing everything exactly the same. It's about everybody understanding the teachings and then finding the way to best train their mind in that direction. So with these first three fetters, I would like to stop and pause and see if there's any questions. Personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, and wrong grasp of behaviors and observances. For someone who eliminates these three fetters, they would have attained this, the stage of enlightenment called stream enter. And this person will, if they die in that stage of enlightenment, they will be reborn back into the human realm no more than seven times. So they may be reborn two or three or four, but no more than seven times, and they will ultimately attain enlightenment. This is why we call it the stream enterer, because they've entered the stream at some point over the course of a maximum of the next seven human lives, they will attain enlightenment. 
Are there any questions from the virtual classroom, from Facebook, from YouTube, or any other places that we're streaming to now on this first stage of enlightenment, stream enter? Yeah, a good question from Carol, which was asking about uh, something you mentioned earlier. She says, can you distinguish between happiness and joy? And sure. when one is enlightened, is joyfulness always present? Great question. So the way that I describe happiness is happiness is a feeling. It's a temporary feeling that you can be happy and then that's impermanent and the mind can then go to sadness or frustration or boredom or loneliness or something else. Happiness is a impermanent feeling that we experience and happiness we can still have ill will. We can still have hatred. We can be happy that our worst enemy uh, had something bad happen to them. And we can still be happy, right? But joyfulness or joy, this is a mental state that I describe as permanent. Uh, it, but someone who is happy can still have ill will or hatred or anger. But someone who's joyful is always going to be happy. I don't know if this part is explaining it well enough, but if you're joyful, you're always going to be happy. But if you're happy, you're not always going to be joyful. So happiness is temporary. Happiness can still have ill will, can still have hatred or anger. But when someone's joyful, they're going to always have happiness. They're, it's, it's kind of a reverse, a reverse order. And yes, someone who has attained Nibbana, there's always joy because you're never experiencing anger. You're never experiencing sadness. You're never experiencing loneliness or guilt or shame or boredom. So there's always joy. You know, it's not excitement, right? Excitement is still discontent feelings. So you're not jumping off the wall and bouncing all over the place, but there's an inner joy that can't be removed and it never gets extinguished. Your mind is always peaceful, always calm, always serene, always content, always joyful. This happiness that we experience in the unenlightened state, it's impermanent and the mind can bounce around to sadness, anger, frustration, loneliness, guilt, shame, with periods of peacefulness here and there. But with someone who's attained Nibbana, they will joke, they will laugh, they will hear other people joke, their mind will experience that feeling, but then their mind will come right back to the middle. Oftentimes, if you've been around people in the unenlightened state, you'll hear people that want to be happy and crave happiness, and they'll just tell joke after joke after joke after joke in order for the mind to kind of dwell in happiness, and the mind kind of pulls in that direction. But someone who's attained enlightenment, they understand the danger of allowing their mind to dwell in this happiness because they know if the mind dwells in this happiness, it's going to swing back to the other side. And if the mind craves happiness, it's going to swing back to the other side. So someone who's attained Nibbana will laugh, will joke, will even tell jokes, but they allow their mind to go there, laugh, and then they bring their mind right back to the middle and they're still joyful, they're still peaceful, they're still calm, content, uh, and all those things. Does that answer your question, Carol? Yes. 
Thank you, David. And would it also be the same with sadness and grief? That, like, if they lose someone they love, they'll feel that sadness and grief, but then swing back to the middle? That's not for someone who's attained enlightenment. For someone who's attained enlightenment, they will never experience sadness or grief or any of those feelings like when someone dies. When someone dies, someone who's attained enlightenment understands death. They understand that because the person was born, they had to die. They understand that um, everything's impermanent. Their mind has been functioning in understanding impermanence for a really long time, you know, as part of enlightenment. And when someone dies, they will appreciate the time that they've spent together. They will appreciate the, the time that they've had in the, their life together, but they won't experience sadness or grief or guilt or shame. It's just, okay, this person has died and it's just part of life. They just accept it as part of life. So they, their, their mind won't even go to, to sadness when someone dies. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why there's so much joy, because there's nothing that can make you sad. There's nothing that can make you uh, discontent because you do it yourself. You've trained the mind so well that you understand that you're causing the sadness, you're causing the grief, you're causing the guilt and all these other discontents emotions. And why would you stab yourself with a knife just because someone died? So even if it's someone close to you, like a parent or a child or a partner, you won't feel sadness at all. You'll just recognize that, okay, it was this time for this person to die and you'll appreciate the time that you've spent together and recognize that, okay, life's impermanent. Yeah, it's one of the reasons there's so much joy. Nothing will cause you discontentness. Another question, Max, or I also see Roberto has his hand up. Yes, that's the, I was going to pass to Roberto. So if you'd like Roberto, I shall unmute you and the floor is yours. Hey, uh, good evening, good afternoon to everyone, depending on where you're at. Uh, my question was about the um, dissolving the ego. Um, the idea of dissolving the ego seems so immense to me at this point. Uh, my, my curiosity is, um, how, do I, how do I start to take those first few steps of um, actually recognizing the ego when it's when it's active, and um, what are what are the first few pieces I can start to take out of that to to essentially get that started? Work on it. The ego is always going to want to feel important. Oftentimes, it wants to be above other people. It wants to kind of exert its dominance. It wants to have self identity, self image. The ego is going to feel like it's been stepped on. If somebody says something that's displeasing to you, the ego is going to want people to do it your way. The ego is going to want to always be right. The ego is going to want to show other people how smart you are and how intelligent you are. It has its own craving, its own significance, its own importance. And it just gets in the way so much in life. The ego is going to sit there and listen to people talk and kind of almost crave to jump in and show how smart it is. And this other person's got it wrong. The ego is going to, uh, it's not going to listen to other people for understanding. It's going to listen and then wait for its time to kind of jump in and show how smart the ego is. You'll know that the ego is there because 
the ego just it always wants to be fed the ego pretty much is there all the way until you get to the last stage of enlightenment even though the buddha talked about this first stage of enlightenment as dissolving the personal existence view which is non-self and even though i talk oftentimes about the ego being part of non-self in reality when you hear the 10 fetters one of the higher fetters is conceit and conceit deals with arrogance and kind of putting yourself above or below other people so even in the first second and third stage of enlightenment where someone is really having quite good clarity of mind even they're having good focus good concentration even though they're they're experiencing very little discontentness as they get closer to that third stage of enlightenment the ego is actually still present all the way until it gets to the last stage of enlightenment which is arahant when we dissolve that fetter of conceit which we haven't talked about yet so what you need to do is you need to constantly be working on dissolving this ego and eliminating this ego from the mind of always wanting to be right always wanting to be significant always wanting to be important always looking for others to acknowledge our meaningful words the the ego is just always kind of ever present and the ego as you get more and more enlightened and you're kind of aware that you're going through the first second stage of enlightenment the ego is going to want to convince you that you're more enlightened than you really are you know whatever you think in terms of what jhana you're in or what stage of enlightenment you're in the ego is going to constantly tell you that you're more enlightened than you actually really are and this is the way that the ego protects itself and it holds on the ego holds on at all costs it's either going to fight or it's going to run uh, it doesn't want to be dissolved and it's one of the last things to hold on and it's very easy to pick up ego if you're around ego so you have to get really good at acknowledging and seeing your ego and get really good at dissolving it some things that i've done is you know sleeping on the floor really helped to dissolve ego whying people and kind of bowing to people you know i, I why and, and bow to everybody in thailand whether it's you know someone at a government office a police officer a street sweeper a waiter security guard at the front gate of our village i show appreciation and say thanks to everybody i listen to everybody when somebody says something to me even if i feel that it's unhelpful i will listen to the entire thing that they're trying to tell me because 90 95% of it could be unhelpful but there's those little nuggets sometimes if somebody says something and it's really helpful but even if 100% of what they're telling me is so called unhelpful that i already know it for example it's actually helpful to your practice to just sit there and listen to somebody patiently and calmly and see everybody as an equal just see everybody in your life as an equal uh, saying thank you saying you're welcome using nice words like sir and ma'am being very polite being very kind doing polite things like opening doors for people whether it's a old woman or old man or whether it's a young child you know just treating everybody equally this is kind of going into equanimity as well 
but just really just seeing yourself as just an average Joe, just an average person with no real significance. We'll go into this more when we get to that chapter, but just continually working on being humble, being peaceful, being calm, being down to earth, and not ever viewing yourself as above somebody or even below, because viewing yourself as below someone can be just as destructive to the mind as viewing yourself as above. So it just takes a lot of work to dissolve the ego. It's, it's, I would say the number one most challenging thing in this practice is dissolving the ego. Just doing what you guys are doing, being on this call and kind of viewing another person as your, your teacher and accepting someone as your teacher is kind of a way of dissolving the ego and being honest with that person and sharing that, you know, I don't know, or I, I am frustrated or I am angry, kind of like what Roberto was saying last week when we, you had a question saying, yeah, I got frustrated and I didn't like it. You know, these things are helping you to dissolve the ego because oftentimes the ego wants to show that it's so important. You know, it's, it's more enlightened than it really is. So by sharing with others that, yeah, I'm not perfect is a good way of, of just saying, yeah, I'm regular, just like everyone else. So these are some things, Roberto. I know that you're looking for real actionable things. I think to really get to something that's really going to penetrate and really help you the most, probably a one-on-one -on -one conversation is probably warranted at this point, you know, just to really sit down and kind of talk about what's going on in your life and things that you're experiencing. So I can kind of give you more specific guidance for you rather than kind of this more general, broad uh, information. So feel free to reach out and we can connect up and have a one-on-one -on -one chat. Yeah. Okay. All right. Any other questions? No more questions for now. And okay. if at any point, guys, do have a question, you can either type it in the chat window here or feel free to raise your hand on Zoom and we'll get to it. Okay, well, the first stage of enlightenment, this stream enter, would be free from personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, and wrong grasp of behavior and observances. The next stage, which is called a once returner, we call it a once returner because this person, if they die with this stage of enlightenment, they are going to return to the human realm one more time before they attain enlightenment. So in that next birth, they're going to essentially attain enlightenment. So this person is going to have eliminated the first three fetters because they've already been a stream her, and they're going to greatly thin the fourth and fifth fetter. The fourth fetter is central desire. This relates to desire of the senses or pleasing of the senses. Things like the eyes, the nose, the tongue, the ears, the contact with the body. Oftentimes, this one is associated with sexual contact. A stream enterer would still be having sex and still be having sexual contact, as well as a once returner. A once returner will still be having sex as well. However, a once returner will have greatly thinned their desire or their craving for sexual contact. So they'll be very selective in who they're interacting with on a 
sexual level and their sexual experiences are going to be very heightened because at this point, the person's mind is now not selfish. It's not just having this sexual encounter because they're craving this sex and because they want it and because they desire it so highly the way we do completely in the unenlightened state. People oftentimes function like animals. We just run around having sex with whomever we can find. But someone who's worked with their mind and trained it to the point where they're a once returner and having greatly thinned their central desire, they're gonna be very selective about who they're having sexual contact with. And when they're in those experiences, they're going to be looking to most likely have an enjoyable experience where they're pleasing the other person. They're going to be having this sexual encounter in a way that's going to be very pleasing to all parties involved. It's not a selfish desire like it is when someone who's completely unenlightened and not even on the path, it becomes a very selfish uh, act where someone who's practiced to this level, uh, it's going to be have much more intimacy as part of uh, the sexual contact. Another aspect of central desire as you heard me mention about the, the senses are things like the eyes, the nose, the tongue, the ears. You know, sometimes when we're in the unenlightened state, we only want music to be playing that is pleasing to our ears or we only want to smell things that are pleasing or we only want to see things that are pleasing. We only want to taste certain foods that are pleasing. We only want certain fabrics on our body that are very pleasing uh, to the skin. Someone who's practiced to the level of a once returner, these things are going to be greatly thinned where they can see things or smell things or taste things or hear things or feel things on the body that aren't necessarily pleasing and they can still be content. So they've greatly thinned their craving for central desires. They're more interested in seeing their mind be calm and content and peaceful. They're more interested in seeing all beings kind of get along with each other and be well. They're more interested in training the mind rather than pleasing the senses, right? So someone who's a once returner has thinned their central desire and they've also thinned their ill will. Ill will relates to the poison of anger or hatred. Ill will is like hostility, aggression, frustration, irritation, annoyance. So someone who's thinned their ill will, they are generally a pleasant person to be around. They don't really get frustrated very easily. Uh, they don't really have any aggression or annoyances, but occasionally they get somewhat annoyed or they occasionally get somewhat irritated or frustrated, or they may talk a little bit rough occasionally. But by and large, the vast majority of their, their day and their week and their month is pretty peaceful. They just have a little bit of ill will there that still exists, that the mind is still holding on to. So as a once returner, you're experiencing pretty good clarity of mind, but you still have occasional situations where you crave sex or you crave certain sensual desires. You still have certain occasions where you get frustrated or irritated and these things kind of crop up occasionally. And that's why we say a once returner has greatly thinned 
these fourth and fifth fetters, which is sensual desire and ill will. And then a non-returner. This is the third stage of enlightenment or nibbana. Someone that dies in this stage of enlightenment will not return to the human realm at all. They will actually be reborn into the heavenly realm. They are non-returner. They won't return back to the human realm. And this person has eliminated all of the five lower fetters. So they've already eliminated personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, wrong grasp of behavior and observances, central desires, completely eliminated that. So this person wouldn't be having sex at this point. They wouldn't have be looking out for pleasing the senses like the, the eyes, the nose, the tongue, the ears, the bodily contact, and they will have completely eliminated ill will. They will not experience any frustration, irritation, or anything of that nature. They'll still have boredom or loneliness. They might still have a little bit of sadness. Uh, they might feel kind of a little bit icky from time to time, but none of it is hatred or anger or frustration or irritation or hostility. Their words are always going to be polite and kind, respectful. You're never going to see any ill will from this person. And someone who's attained the third stage of enlightenment, they're going to be feeling really, really great about the world and have a very, very good life from that point forward. And all of these stages, as we progress, it's important that you understand that these are all personal choices. These aren't things that you need to hurry up and do right away. So if you're somebody who's learning these teachings and you're in your 20s or even in your teens or your early 30s, and you know you can't even imagine eliminating sexual contact from your life at this point, that's completely fine. You don't need to hurry up and go do this. But essentially, if you worked on this path and you attained the stage of enlightenment of stream enter, the first stage or the second stage, where you're still having sexual contact, you're going to be very, very pleased with having attained that mental state. And then at some point in your life, if you choose to have a partner, male or female, if you choose to have children or not, if you're in just a relationship where you've chosen not to have children, but you still have sexual contact, you can live a very good life as a stream enter in a once returner. And then at some point in your life, if you choose to work towards that third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner, that's when you might choose to start working on eliminating the central desire and working on eliminating the ill will. But you're probably going to be working on eliminating ill will all the way through this entire path. But oftentimes when people hear that eliminating sexual contact is part of this path, sometimes they, they may not even want to step in and start uh, on the path to begin with. But keep in mind that this is something later in practice, once you get to the first or second stage of enlightenment and you choose that you wanna move forward to the third or fourth stage of enlightenment, that's when you can work on eliminating sexual desire if you choose. Now, some people, that may not even be an issue at all. They may have already eliminated sensual desire and they haven't even gotten to the first stage of enlightenment yet, but sex isn't really part of their life and isn't even something that they have an interest in doing, but yet they still aren't even at the first stage of enlightenment. So 
How these fetters start to be eliminated along the path is completely your choice and how you work on these and how you start to uh, dissolve them is completely your choice. Where I come in as a teacher is as you start working on these various fetters and you need help to learn how to dissolve these, I can help you learn how to eliminate these from the mind based on my own experiences and helping you to think about certain ways that you may decide to start eliminating these. But when you choose to eliminate them or if you choose to eliminate them is completely your choice. So let me pause there with the first three stages and see if there's questions on any of those. Stream enter, once returner, and non-returner with the five lower fetters of personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, wrong grasp of behaviors and observances, central desire, and ill will. Are there any questions on those five lower fetters? Yes, yeah, so Karen asked a question when we were talking about eliminating sensual desire. She asks, is listening to music bad or is it just the attachment to needing to listen to music for happiness? Yeah, don't think of any of these things, any of these fetters as good or bad. Think of them as what is going to cause discontentness of the mind. So something like sex, there's nothing wrong with sex. It's not bad, it's not good. Uh, it's just that if we're craving sex, it's going to cause the mind to be discontent when it doesn't have it. And I'm sure all of you guys have been in that situation where you've been interested in having sex and you don't have it and the mind becomes discontent. So with music, it's not about whether it's good or bad. It's that if you crave music and you crave a certain type of music, then the mind can be discontent when it doesn't have it. The other thing with music is music is created by artists in order to elicit in certain emotional responses, certain feelings, right? Certain music you listen to can be very aggressive and very hostile. Certain music you listen to can be very calming, very soothing. Certain music can be very inquisitive and very intellectual. So it's not that music is necessarily good or bad. It's that music is designed to elicit certain feelings in the mind and that is being caused by some external thing. So you can listen to music and still attain enlightenment. And in fact, what you'll notice is as you listen to music, if you have mindfulness, you have awareness of mind that you'll notice how certain musics shift the mind and move the mind in certain directions. And a really observant practitioner is going to observe that and make choices of whether they choose to continue to listen to this music or not. So music can actually be useful as you're on this path where let's just say you're, you haven't attained any of these stages of enlightenment, you're noticing the mind is bored or lonely, you can bring in some music in order to apply what we call right effort and bring the mind to a more calm or peaceful or more energetic mental state. However, if you rely on that music, it then becomes an attachment where you're moving the mind with some external source and it requires this music in order to put the mind in a more calm or peaceful mind state. Now I say early in practice, use it and, and, and bring the mind to where you need it to be. 
But over time, as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, and this is one of the reasons why central desires is one of the last things that typically go from the mind, is eventually when you get to the higher stages of enlightenment, you need to eliminate central desires so that your mind is not craving that music or needing that music or wanting that music to be able to move it into this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because then every time the mind needs to be in that mental state, it's relying on this music. That's not pure enlightenment. That's not pure nibbana. It's still attached to this central desire. So music can actually be helpful early in practice, but as you get closer and closer to the higher stages of enlightenment, you're going to eventually need to shed it in terms of relying on it for moving the mind, but that doesn't mean you need to not listen to it. What you'll probably find is as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, to the highest stage of enlightenment, you won't actually have an interest to listen to music, kind of an external source, and your mind is already so peaceful, so calm, so content, so joyful, the music, it just isn't even something that interests you at all. But if you hear music, the mind can still be peaceful, calm, and content. But if you don't hear it, that's fine too. So you don't need to run out and necessarily eliminate music unless that's something you want to work on right now. But you can also use music as a way of, of moving the mind should you need that, especially early in practice. So it's not about good or bad. It's just about what the mind will hold on to as kind of a false sense of peacefulness. You want to get to a place where the mind's peaceful, calm, content, joyful, without condition, without any conditions. So oftentimes if the mind's bored or lonely or sad, we have sex in order to put us in a good mood. Or if the mind's lonely, bored, sad, feeling guilty, we listen to music in order to put us in a good mood. But when you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you won't need those things to allow the mind to remain and reside in a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy because it will already be there without conditions. Other questions, okay, Max? so, yeah, we have a question from Roberto and then also Carol to follow. Okay. So I'll just unmute Roberto. Um, yes, uh, David, I think you may have answered a portion of my question in that last statement when you were speaking to the effect of... Um, the music taking me to that point that I'm looking for. Uh, basically what I'm asking is, um, is there a point of realization or an aha moment that, oh, I've begun to recognize these fetters and release them? And in your experience, have you witnessed that for yourself or is it a, an ongoing process that is just constantly working to always be aware of the fetters, release the fetters? Um, and if I do recognize that I'm releasing fetters, is this the ego simply stepping in again to say, hey, good job, Roberto, you're really knocking this out? You got it, Roberto. It's that last part that you're talking about is that always work to eliminate the fetters, never assume they're gone, but the ego is going to want to convince you they're gone. And then after one or two or three months, they pop up again and you're like, there it is. Like I thought they were gone. Or some people will say, oh, this fetter has come back, but it hasn't really come back because it was never gone to begin with. So just like I've described enlightenment in the past, 
where it's not either on or off, like a light switch. It's like, you know, the old time lights, when you turn on the light, the light kind of flickers, flick, 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 and then boom, it's on, right? This is kind of how I describe enlightenment is that when you turn on the switch, it kind of flickers for a little while, flickers, it looks like it's on, and then it's off. It looks like it's on, and then it's off. And it kind of flickers, and then boom, it's on. Well, these fetters do the same thing is as you're chipping away at them and as you're working on them uh, to eliminate them, they'll kind of like look like they're gone for a while. And you're like, hey, I got this, you know, like, like, wow, like I haven't had a sexual craving in like two, three, four months. And then like, whoa, like you smell someone's perfume or you see this beautiful man or woman walk in front of you or you see a certain ad on, on TV and then boom, it just kind of uh, excites something in the mind. And at that point, it's important that you don't feel guilty because oftentimes people will feel guilty like, oh my God, I thought this sexual craving was gone. Like, you know, I haven't had sex for three months and I thought I was done with this. And someone can start beating themselves up and feel guilty and feel shameful. But that shows you that the mind is still discontent because there's still guilt and shame there. So when those fetters crop back in, that's where I talked to you last week and I said, sometimes you gotta laugh at yourself and just be like, ah, silly fetter. Ah, I still gotta work on this craving. Wow, that woman was absolutely beautiful. And yeah, she had some good smelling perfume on there. <laughs> you know, like, wow, <laughs> that really got me excited. <laughs> and you kind of have to laugh at yourself and be like, well, I know if I go back there, that's gonna be discontent and I don't wanna go there. I really am enjoying this peaceful, calm, content mind for the last two or three months. And I don't want to go back there. So yeah, I'm going to get rid of that craving or if we relate it to music, you know, maybe you chose to eliminate music and your mind's been bored for two, three, four days. And you're like, you know what? Let me just listen to a little bit of music, put my mind back into that kind of peaceful, calm mental state, and then eliminate the music from there. So don't feel guilty as these fetters are diminished. It's like a candle. If you blow out a candle, oftentimes it flickers. It looks like it's blown out all the way, but it's not. And it kind of comes back and the flame comes back. And sometimes it can come back stronger than it was before. And yes, the ego is going to want to tell you that these fetters are extinguished long before they actually are. You know, if, if you haven't had sex for many, many months or many, many years, I think you can consider, yes, I've extinguished sexual contact or, you know, I haven't listened to music or had a desire to listen to music for many, many years. Uh, yes, I consider it to be gone. But when we're talking about a number of weeks or just a number of months, it doesn't help you to consider to be eliminated because that's just the ego wanting to convince you that it is eliminated because then you become complacent, you become relaxed and that's when things can creep back in on you so it's better to just keep focused on the goal and keep working towards the goal of eliminating these fetters never assume they're eliminated okay let's switch over to carol then carol i'm going to unmute you okay. so i don't know if this is the right time for this question but about rebirth the human existence is so rare so we work on what we can and try to put good karma to the next rebirth. So before we get reborn into another human existence to hopefully reach enlightenment, 
Are there multiple lives of non-human existence in between while we work on our fetters and evolution to enlightenment? So I would start with saying your number one goal in this life should be to attain enlightenment as an arahant, not to produce enough gamma so that you will be reborn into another human life is you're in a position where you're now human you can now work to attain enlightenment nibbana arahant staying focused on all 10 fetters and working to eliminate all 10 of them rather than just producing enough gamma to get to the next rebirth because what you're going to hear the sixth and seventh fetter are desires to be reborn because sometimes you talk to people and they actually have a desire to be reborn or a craving to be reborn. And if they have that desire, they will be reborn and, and not necessarily in the human realm. Once you're reborn into one of the other realms, like especially the lower realms, you know, hell, afflicted spirits and animal realm, it's very hard to get back to the human realm. So because this human birth is so rare, it's best to focus on all 10 fetters and work to eliminate all 10 fetters in this birth that you have right now because now you can do it. But let's just say you attain dream entry once returner. In those stages of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn back into the human realm. What your question is, is, is there anything in between that, you know, from this birth to your next human birth? And the answer is yes, but we don't necessarily know what that is and where that is. And it doesn't really matter because that's really all in the future. And what really needs to happen is focus on the present moment, not even focused on if you will be reborn, because this is the biggest challenge for people in the, these teachings is, especially people who are moving from a Christian background into a Buddhist background, is this teaching of rebirth. And there's people who know that this is true 100%, the cycle of rebirth, because they've seen their previous births. Uh, they've seen their previous lives. So we know that this cycle of rebirth is, is real and it's true. But someone who's just starting out on the path or even five, 10 years on the path, maybe has never seen their previous lives. So sometimes people get really concerned about the, the cycle of rebirth and where they may be reborn in the future. And what I share with people is, I always use the cycle of rebirth as motivation to learn and practice uh, that, yes, I don't want to repeat this again. I don't want to go through the sadness, the boredom, the misery, the anger, the frustration, all those discontent emotions, all the pain and misery that I experienced at different parts of my life. I don't want to experience that again. And if I'm reborn into one of the lower realms, it's going to be a lot of pain and misery and suffering. And then it's going to be a human birth again and a lot of more pain, misery and suffering. Or even if you're reborn right back into the human realm, you still are going to go through pain and misery. You're not reborn back. You know, when you come out as a baby, you're not reborn having had enlightenment. You still got to earn your way. You still got to work your way back through all that misery and pain. So I always use the cycle of rebirth as motivation to encourage me not to repeat all of this again. And then once I actually observed my past lives, I knew for sure it was truth. 
and I knew for sure that this is absolutely 100% true. But what may or may not happen in the future, it really doesn't have any bearing on your ability to learn and practice now. And what actually happened in the past, while it's interesting and it's interesting insight, it really doesn't have any impact on your ability to learn and practice now. So this cycle of rebirth, I would use it as motivation rather than anything else that you may be thinking about now that you may or may not be thinking about now. But yes, there is something in between these rebirths that we're not instantly reborn from one birth to the next. I observed two previous human births and a lot of animal births. And the first human birth was about 25, 2600 years ago. The second one was about 500 years after that. And now there's this current birth. And this current birth was about 2000 years after my, my second birth. So I had a period of about 500 years between the first human birth and the second, and about 2000 years between the second human birth and now. So there's something somewhere there, but it almost, it doesn't really matter to be honest, because we're here now, we're human, and we can learn and practice and attain this mental state of enlightenment. That's the best situation to be in. You. You're welcome. So we have a question from James. Is it possible through practice, the ego, to be temporarily suspended prior to its elimination? Absolutely, yeah, just like all these other fetters, the ego can kind of shrink quite a bit and appear to be gone for uh, weeks or months or however long, and then it can kind of rear back up. And this is why I always encourage people, never assume that the ego is gone. Never assume that any of these fetters are gone and just constantly stay on your practice. And whenever you think the ego is gone, that kind of means it's still there <laughs> because the ego wants you to think it's gone. And should it ever rear its head again, then just know that and just constantly work on it and, and get rid of it. So never assume it's gone. Never declare it's gone because as soon as you declare it's gone, you're kind of admitting that it's still there. Yeah, these things can appear to be gone and then they, they rear back up. I have a question. Is it possible to experience frustration, anger, without ill will, without hatred? Because often I, I, I might feel frustrated, but if you ask me, I would never sort of consciously want to inflict harm on what I thought was the source of my frustration, because you know, I see that's on some level my attachment. It, it always comes from my attachment. Yeah, this fetter. Those words are used interchangeably. Yeah, all these, all these ten fetters, they actually map into the three poisons, and the fetter that we call ill will, it maps into the poison of hatred and anger, and ill will uh, is in there too. And these are kind of like the highest forms of that poison, but then there's kind of like lower degrees. So as this poison is diminishing over time. There's frustration, irritation, annoyance, dislike, you know, there's kind of like these lower versions. But when we describe the fetter or we describe the poison, 
we use these kind of like highest qualities of that poison so you really understand what that poison or that fetter is all about. So we call it ill will, but it really maps into the poison of hatred, of anger, which is where frustration, irritation, annoyance, dislike all comes out of that same thing. So the one word of ill will doesn't really describe this fetter 100%. So in the book, when I describe this fetter, I went further and I, the fetter is called ill will, but I described it and said elimination of hatred, anger, hostility, aggression, frustration, irritation, annoyance, and so dislike. They do all exist on the, on the same spectrum of aversion. So on some level, a, a frustration is a minor form of, uh, you know, anger, which is a minor form of, of hatred, perhaps, although it's... it's I'm right saying that, but it is it's just like a, a lesser form of it. There is a kind of oh, get away from me, a kind of aversion. Exactly, because you can you can be angry at somebody without hating them, right? So that's why it really takes guidance on this path, where like you can't just you can't just pick up a book, read it, and then instantly become enlightened. <clears throat> you can't pick up Gautama Buddha's teachings and just read a book and instantly become enlightened, because you need more words and more guidance to fully extrapolate and draw out what are these teachings and that's where a teacher is going to draw on their experience so even though we call it the poison of hatred you can be angry without hating someone so that's why we say hatred anger ill will frustration irritation annoyance dislike all of these are on that same spectrum and essentially what they're doing in with this fetter is you're extinguishing all of that where you get to the point where you might not prefer to eat a certain thing, but you don't dislike it. You're just like, oh, well, yeah, I just prefer not to eat that. But you wouldn't say like, oh, I don't like that. Those words don't come to your mind. All right, thank you. Yeah, so let's go into the higher fetters. And I know we're, we're past 10 o'clock, but, you know, this one hour to kind of talk about what is enlightenment, like that's, you know, good luck with that. You know, one hour to talk about awakening the mind and what is Nibbana, what is enlightenment. The book has quite a few pages, I think 17 or 19 pages for this chapter, but I'm just going to cover kind of the highlights here in really focusing on the fetters because that's how you attain enlightenment. So someone who's attained this fourth stage of enlightenment as an arahant will have eliminated all the five lower fetters that we've already talked about personal existence view, doubt about the teachings, wrong grasp of behavior and observances, sensual desires, and ill will. But then they will have also eliminated the 10 higher fetters. These are desire for form. What desire for form is, is a desire to be reborn into one of the form realms. A form realm is the animal realm and the human realm. Those are the only two form realms because out of the five realms, you've got hell, afflicted spirits, animal, human, and heavenly realm. These hell and afflicted spirits and heavenly realm, those are what we call the formless realms and the animal and human are the form realms. So we need to eliminate the desire to be reborn in one of the animal or human realm. Sometimes when you talk to certain people on the path, they'll tell you, 
My goal is just to get to the first or second stage of enlightenment so that I can be reborn into the human realm and get enlightenment later. I'm just going to kind of practice enough just to get to the first or second stage of enlightenment. And this is someone who still has desire for form. Uh, some people will even tell you that they have an interest to be reborn as an animal um, without really fully understanding what that means. So the sixth fetter is eliminating the desire to be reborn in the animal or human realm. The seventh fetter is desire to be reborn in the formless realm, like hell, afflicted spirits, or heaven. Now you might think like, who would ever want to be reborn in hell? Well, there's people that do have that feeling. And there's people who have a feeling to be uh, reborn into afflicted spirits. And there's people who have a feeling to be reborn in heaven. Uh, let's talk about afflicted spirits a little bit because I was talking with somebody recently about this. And let me just kind of explain that a little bit more. This realm is like demons or ghosts, devilish spirits, right? Like, like dark spirits. That's what that realm is about. So you've already heard about this realm. You may even even experienced uh, entities from this realm in your life. And there are people that have a desire to be in one of those realms, either hell, afflicted spirits, or heaven. So we have to eliminate the interest to be reborn at all. I'm interested in being done with all of this. The eighth fetter is conceit. Now, this is where the ego is really being dissolved 100%. In the personal existence view, we've dissolved a good amount of the ego, but it's still kind of there on a certain degree. In With conceit, this is eliminating arrogance, pride, judging, uh, measuring or comparing that you're superior or inferior to somebody else. And once again, both of those can be destructive to the mind. So oftentimes we walk around feeling proud, right? Someone who has attained the first, second, or third stage of Nibbana may be proud or very have a lot of pride that they've accomplished that. Or someone might even just be proud that they're practicing being a Buddhist. Or they might be very proud that they're, they've attained one of the jhanas. Well, to attain the highest stage of enlightenment, you need to eliminate all your pride. It doesn't mean that you don't have goals and you don't pursue goals and that you're pleased when you accomplish these goals. But pride is kind of like puffing yourself up and you know, maybe desiring praise or feeling like you're somehow emboldened or somehow arrogant because you've accomplished these things. So to attain the stage of Arahant, you have to eliminate any conceit, any arrogance, pride, judging, measuring or comparing yourself to others, uh, putting yourself above or below other people and just seeing everyone as equal. The ninth fetter is restlessness. Okay, this is an interesting fetter, and you can observe this in people as well. This is the elimination of uh, being like confused or distracted, uh, a restless state of mind, like a real busy mind, uh, kind of the, the opposite of single-mindedness. So someone with restlessness, even in the first three stages of Nibbana, their mind might jump around from topic to topic to topic, not being able to focus and stay clued into any one particular conversation or one train of thought. 
they're going to be losing their thoughts quite often in conversation and not really know where they are in their thinking. Someone who's attained the highest stage of enlightenment, their thoughts are going to be one at a time, one at a time. They're just very single-mindedness. They're going to be very focused, very concentrated. Nothing really distracts them or disturbs them. They're very singular focused on any one topic of conversation. You'll also see their body movements that someone who's attained the highest stage of enlightenment, you're not going to see a restless leg when somebody's sitting and talking, you know, that nervous leg that people get and kind of bounce around. If you're experiencing that, you need to eliminate that because what that is, is that's the mind cycling. That's the mind being very active. And what's happening is it's showing up in the body. So sometimes even if you see someone doing a talk and you see their leg bouncing, you know that their mind is very busy in that talk. Uh, so you can observe people's body language and their thoughts and the way that they speak that if people are losing their train of thought frequently throughout a conversation or they're kind of looking over here while you're talking to them or they're on their phone while you're talking to them, people's minds are restless. They can't just be single mindedness. So in order to attain enlightenment at the highest stage, you have to have laser like focus and single mindedness. This is what the Buddha described. He used the word singleness of mind being very focused and not having restlessness, restlessness of thoughts. And by having restlessness of thoughts, you're going to see restlessness in the body as well. Okay. So if you're that way now, it's okay. Just work on calming it down. And when you notice it, when you notice that your legs bouncing or you're tapping on tabletop or something, when you see that with the body, look at the mind and say, what's in the mind? Something's in there that's making the mind very active. And you need to slow that down and you need to calm that down, bring the mind back to the breath so that you can eliminate that restlessness and develop singleness of mind. And this is where very enlightened people are going to be very productive in their life because they're doing just one thing at a time and they're doing it very, very well. Each thing they're doing, they're just doing it very well because they're very focused, very committed, uh, very concentrated in what they're doing. Oftentimes we're led to believe in modern society that multitasking is the way to get a lot of things done. But if you're doing three, four, five, ten things at a time, you're not doing any of those things well. You're actually doing one thing at a time. You're just flipping between them all so rapidly that you're not actually getting focus on any one particular thing at a time. So what you need to do is train your mind to just do one thing at a time and just do it really, really well. When the Buddha taught about this, he said things like, when you're talking, know that you're talking. When you're walking, know that you're walking. He even went as far as saying, when you're eating, know that you're eating. When you're urinating, know that you're urinating. When you're defecating, know that you're defecating. And I often joke with people and say, how did he know 2,500 years ago, people would be sitting on the toilets with smartphones, right? Because <laughs> what people are doing is they're, they're trying to do two or three things at one time. And if you've ever done that, which I have in the past, you notice that things don't happen down there quite as well when you're on your smartphone 
you know, you're not defecating, you're not urinating as well because the mind is split between different things. So if you just sit on the toilet and urinate, or you just sit on the toilet and defecate, or you're just talking, you know that you're talking, you're walking, you know that you're walking, you're eating, you know that you're eating. If you keep this singleness of mind and you train the mind in this way, with the simple task of urinating, defecating, talking, eating, walking, what you'll notice is when you're in a meeting with colleagues or friends, or when you're on a phone talking to a friend, your attention is gonna be very laser-like focused, very concentrated. But you gotta start with the simple things. If you can't train your mind to be single-mindedness while you're urinating and defecating, then how are you gonna have singleness of mind when you've got a phone in your hand and you're in the passenger side of a car and all the trees are going by so fast and there's people in the back talking, how can you be singleness of mind? So you gotta train your mind with the simple things that the Buddha talked about. When you're talking, you're talking, walking, you're walking, eating, you're eating, urinating, urinating, defecating, you're defecating. Don't do anything else. And what you notice is when you get the singleness of mind, you're gonna be much more productive and successful in each one of those tasks and activities that you're doing because you're just singleness of mind. So even though you're not at the level of where you're ready to start working on being an arahant, you can still work on this restlessness of mind. It doesn't mean you have to wait until the end to get to that point. And that's why I talk about these upfront in our program because if you understand the bigger picture, you don't have to wait to work on this. You can actually, when you notice that the mind's restless, work on bringing it to singleness of mind. When you notice the body's jumping and there's activity in the body, work on that, even though you're not maybe ready to even start working on eliminating this fetter, you can still work on that now. So the ninth fetter is restlessness, eliminating confusion of mind, distraction of mind, restless state of mind, essentially, bringing the mind to a singleness of mind, single-mindedness, okay? And then the 10th fetter, the very last one, we label it as ignorance. This relates back to the three poisons, delusion, ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. The Buddha never, in my view, never used the word ignorant. Remember, he wasn't speaking in English. These are the English words that were associating to his teachings. And most people associate this last fetter and this last poison to delusion or ignorance. But ignorance is a derogatory term, and we wouldn't really refer to somebody in a polite and respectful way by calling them ignorant. So someone who's highly enlightened, a perfectly fully enlightened Buddha, isn't going to call somebody ignorant or stupid or foolish. Sometimes you'll see quotes on Facebook that the Buddha called people foolish or delusional or ignorant. In my view, he didn't use those words at all. What he was referring to is the unknowing of true reality. Someone who's attained the stage of enlightenment as an arahant will have eliminated this fetter of unknowing of true reality, which means this person is going to fully understand the Four Noble Truths realizing that they cause their own discontent mind and they can eliminate it. They're gonna fully understand and recognize impermanence. This is why when someone dies, Carol, 
that someone who's in, attained enlightenment, they fully understand impermanence and they're expecting everyone to die. Their mind is fully expecting everything and everyone to cease. Anything that arises has to cease to exist. There's no permanence. So someone who's attained enlightenment and fully eliminated this fetter, they completely acknowledge and, and understand impermanence, expecting everyone to die, including themselves. That's why someone who's attained enlightenment won't fear death, including their own death. Uh, someone will fully understand the natural law of gamma. They'll understand the cycle of rebirth. Uh, they'll understand all of these teachings of the Buddha in exquisite detail and be able to communicate that in a very clear, very concise, very direct way. So essentially, if you've eliminated this fetter of delusion or ignorance or unknowing of true reality, this person at the highest stage of enlightenment is going to have deep wisdom because wisdom is the antidote to this poison or this fetter. This fetter of ignorance, the way that we eliminate that is through learning and practicing the teachings, observing the truth for ourselves, acquiring wisdom. And this wisdom, the more wisdom you acquire, you're working on eliminating that ignorance. So oftentimes people who are very highly enlightened like this, you will find them teaching. You will find them teaching other people because they fully eliminated all the discontentness in the mind. They have deep, deep, deep wisdom and they understand this mental state of enlightenment. It's like discovering the cure to cancer and you're interested in seeing other people experience that same mental state. So these people will have deep amounts of wisdom having eliminated that last and 10th fetter of ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So that six higher fetters, or I'm sorry, the five higher fetters are desire for form, desire for formless, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. All of those will have been eliminated to attain the stage of enlightenment as an arahant. So in the book, this third chapter, I've detailed what all the fetters are. And you can be working on these and each stage of the enlightenment is for your personal guidance, for your personal growth. Uh, again, it's not something that you compare to one another. You are kind of like ill-equipped. Each person is ill-equipped to determine if you've even eliminated any of these fetters. You could say that you've eliminated the self, but that could be just the ego telling you that you've eliminated it. It's only other people that can really observe this. This is why the Buddha had this community of ordained people, community of household practitioners, because everybody is helping each other along this path. So someone could feel that they're very highly enlightened, but other people aren't seeing it. And there's ways of skillfully helping people along this path that may perhaps feel that they've eliminated the self and there's still ego there, or they may feel like they've eliminated some of these other fetters. So you have these in the book to work on and to slowly pursue. I can give you specific guidance if any of you guys would like to have a one-on-one -on -one chat. One of the other things about enlightenment is it's never something that you should ever try to tell somebody else you're enlightened because that's just the ego wanting to tell other people that you're enlightened. If you're enlightened, 
you shouldn't need to tell anyone else that you're enlightened because other people are going to see it for themselves. People are going to know that you're respectful, they're polite, you're kind, you're helpful, you're always giving of your time, you're never angry, you're never frustrated. They might not know that those things are enlightenment, but they just, you know, they may not even be on the path, but they're just going to enjoy being around you. And this is why you're going to notice that it's really easy to make friends. It's really easy to have business contacts. It's really easy to launch community efforts and be successful in them because you never get angry. You never get frustrated. Nothing ever bothers you. Uh, you're never annoyed. And people are just going to generally spend enjoy spending time around you. So you don't need to go around and tell people you're enlightened because that's how people are going to know that you're not. And people who aren't even on the path aren't even aware of what enlightenment is. So they wouldn't even understand what that means. But you having attained this mental state of enlightenment, you're going to enjoy the benefits of having done so because you're going to find that life is very peaceful. Life is very calm. Anything that you would like to get into, whether it's personal things or business things or helping uh, society or leading grassroots efforts for various causes or political pursuits, anything that you choose to get into, you're going to find a way to be successful at it because enlightened people aren't going to focus on problems. They're going to see the problems. They're going to know the problems exist, but they're going to be readily creating solutions to all of these things in order to move things forward in life. They're not going to dwell on all the problems. The Buddha called this fretting about the world. Essentially, you'll stop fretting about the world. Stop being so worried or uh, so much complaining about things that are going on in the world. Because someone who's enlightened, they know that the world is, is a pretty hectic place to exist. That's kind of what motivated them on this path to begin with. So. They're not going to spend time sitting around just complaining about all the things that are going wrong in the world. They're going to be focused on solutions and helping their community, helping the people around them, helping humanity, helping uh, different events or situations. Uh, they're always going to be looking for the solutions. Uh, so someone who's enlightened isn't going to really dwell on uh, the problems. While we're talking about these four stages, let's just talk about what a Buddha is. A Buddha is an arahant, right? A Buddha is someone who's attained the highest stage of enlightenment. And we call a Buddha a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. And the reason why is because a Buddha would have attained these mental states on their own without the help of anyone else. And the benefit of doing so is that their learning and the wisdom that they have isn't tainted by other people's views or perspectives or opinions. A Buddha would have attained enlightenment on their own with their own efforts without any teachers or, or anybody assisting them along the path. Because what a Buddha is going to do is a Buddha, and by the way, the last one currently known to the world existed 2,500 years ago, right? Gautama Buddha is the last known Buddha that currently exists that people understand in the entire world was a Buddha. Because he attained this mental state by himself, as certain qualities of mind were coming to the surface, he practiced 
figured out the truth and then he was on to the next thing. And each and, and if something that he practiced didn't work, he threw it away, he discarded it. So by the time he reached enlightenment, he knew exactly what the path was because he didn't have outside opinions tainting his view and perspective. Someone like you who is, who is not a Buddha, you will have learned various things throughout your life. And even someday when you attain or if you attain the stage of enlightenment as an Arahant, you will be enlightened and you will have eliminated full discontentedness but there's still going to be some things in there that you may or may not have acquired from other people. Why we call it a perfect enlightenment, because they know the path, they see the path, they can lead other people on this path, and they can help larger and larger amounts of people progress on this path and actually attain enlightenment because what they're teaching is only the path, the pure path, where someone else who's attained enlightenment, even as an Arahant, they might have 10, 20, 30% of things that are still on board that they're learned and they practiced at some point in their path, but those things didn't really truly lead to any more enlightenment, but they still kind of are practicing them because they didn't really have a way of deciding of whether they truly were leading to their enlightenment or not, they might just be practicing it out of respect and gratitude to their teacher, but their teacher wasn't really fully perfectly enlightened. So there's kind of an accumulation of things that aren't necessarily part of the path. So this is why you can still have enlightened people that aren't a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha and they kind of still have a little bit of miscellaneous stuff that it's not inhibiting them from being enlightened, but it's not fully part of the path. So what a Buddha is, is he's going to be an enlightened being who discovered these teachings on their own, practiced them on their own. They understand the full path. They've discarded anything that doesn't contribute to their enlightenment, and they can lead lots and lots of other people to enlightenment. A Buddha is going to have other qualities. They're going to have a profound memory. They're going to be able to recall countless past events, including their past lives. They're going to have stunning accuracy in remembering and understanding past events. They're also going to understand certain things about the future as well. So a Buddha's mind works very differently than another enlightened being. Other beings in the world, the mind works in a way that it actually rewrites itself. So there are certain things from your childhood that have been overwritten and you don't remember certain details about your childhood, quite a few details probably about your childhood. But a Buddha is going to remember things from their past with stunning accuracy because their mind doesn't get overwritten like a non-Buddha. They're going to retain a, a large amount of information and their memory is going to be very precise with a lot of precision. Buddhas essentially know that it's their very last life. It's very rare for a Buddha to arise in the world and they know it's their very last life because they've attained this mental state and they know that their only goal from that point forward is to 
assist as many people as possible during their life in order to attain this mental state of Nibbana so that those people can then guide others to Nibbana or enlightenment once the Buddha dies. So a Buddha is going to be very focused on retaining teachings, you know, writing down teachings or sharing teachings, you know, teaching people and having those teachings preserved in the mind of people and potentially nowadays if a Buddha was to awaken in written format or other formats so that people can practice these teachings for well into the future. Because a Buddha is so rare, the, again, the last one existed 2,500 years ago, Buddhas do not awaken every 100 years or every 50 years or even every 500 years. So a Buddha's responsibility is not to themselves, but is to the larger humanity around the entire world. So they're going to be working to help as many people as possible to attain enlightenment and leave strong teachings behind so that when they die, more and more and more and more people can attain enlightenment after their death. That's essentially what Gautama Buddha did when he established his teachings over his 45 years. He helped guide as many people to enlightenment as possible during his life, laying down a very strong amount of teachings so that then those people could carry the teachings forward further and further into the world over many, many years and help as many people attain enlightenment as possible uh, after his death. So a Buddha has a responsibility to not themselves, but to the larger humanity. They've transcended any interest in fame or fortune or notoriety. Uh, they're just going to quietly go about their work and do their work to help as many people attain enlightenment as possible and leave behind teachings that will assist others along that path. In this chapter, I also share some physical and emotional symptoms of someone who's pursuing enlightenment. These are all impermanent, but I share these because a lot of the symptoms that you'll experience, a lot of times people associate uh, medical problems that need to be addressed. Things like pressure in the ears or ringing in the ears, weight fluctuations, faster hair and nail growth, heart palpitations, different things, hot flashes, power surges, lethargy, fatigue, certain eruptions of the skin, certain headaches, back pains, flu-like symptoms, numbness and tingling, itching in the body. The five senses can be heightened and diminish over time. They'll kind of like fluctuate. They're impermanent as well. These things don't stick around, but they're things that occur. And if you are thinking that something's wrong, sometimes when I talk to people, they feel like they have to run out and see a doctor because they've been meditating for a lot and they've developed this ringing in the ears. But this is actually a, a sign, a symptom of someone whose mind is becoming more and more enlightened. Sometimes people get dizziness or lightheadedness, nausea, confusion. If you're experiencing any of these things, you know, especially if it's for the first time, I suggest you go seek medical attention and see if there's any medical uh, reasons for this. But don't be surprised if the doctor comes back and says, we can't find any reason or any physical reason why you should be having these. Because if you've been meditating and you've been practicing these teachings long enough, you'll start experiencing some of these things kind of peak and extinguish as you're practicing. You may notice certain things in your life, like certain deaths of animals or 
people around you. As those attachments are starting to be eliminating, you can see some of these symptoms start to fluctuate. You can see divorce or job change or illnesses or catastrophes happen in your life that start to kind of move the mind towards enlightenment because as these attachments start to be eliminated, things can happen. There's also something we call wisdom eyes or the slang word is, is egg yolk where the pupil in the eye becomes very enlarged. Uh, this happens uh, sometimes for many years before somebody actually attains enlightenment. Uh, even when light's being shined into the eye, the pupil can get very, very big. And then eventually, once you actually attain enlightenment, the pupil sh goes back to normal size. But this is one of the ways that if you're looking at people and even in bright light conditions, they have these really big enlarged pupils. There's really no medical reason behind it, but it's the eyes opening up to more wisdom. And if you look at some of the artwork of the Buddha and even Jesus Christ, artists will oftentimes draw the pupils very, very large. This is representing the wisdom eyes or in slaying uh, egg yolk. You'll see changes in sexual drive, heightened and, and diminishing. You'll see fear and death uh, diminish. You'll see that you may feel comfortable being alone. Uh, this is another sign of moving closer to enlightenment. You may see your sleep schedule uh, changing, right? Because even our sleep schedules are impermanent. If you're attached to falling asleep at a certain time every day, if you're attached to having a certain amount of sleep every day, the mind's going to be discontent. But as you move closer and closer to enlightenment, you actually notice that you need less sleep. It's not uncommon for enlightened people to sleep two, three, four, six hours a day and feel completely rested. Even periods of times where you don't sleep at all, you have no sleep whatsoever. And training the mind in those situations where you have no sleep or only one or two hours of sleep, training the mind to be just as calm, content, and peaceful and serene with no sleep as when you have sleep. So don't be attached to having sleep because as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, you'll probably notice insomnia or irregular sleep schedules. Uh, there's lots of different things that we can talk about here with physical symptoms and emotional symptoms, but I just share these as a way that you don't necessarily attribute these things to something wrong or something bad. Know that they're all impermanent, and as the mind gets closer and closer to enlightenment, all these things start to stabilize, and the mind becomes very stable, and you'll notice that your sleep schedule will start to stabilize. And even if you don't sleep for uh, one particular night or two, the more enlightened you are, it won't even bother you that you that you haven't slept. Any questions at all on what is enlightenment, the fetters, the four stages of enlightenment, some of these physical or emotional symptoms? I have a question. So uh, I've heard it said that uh, a stream enterer would be expected to return no more than seven times which means that in theory you could have newborn babies who have, who, have, who have achieved some level of enlightenment. And yet, would you observe that immediately in some way or even as a young child? Because we know that if you look at the physical aspect of, of the mind, the brain, and how that doesn't finish developing roughly until someone's mid-20s. I think for my own life, I... I something seemed to click for me in my mid-20s. I tended to sort of 
say fewer foolish things and embarrass myself less frequently uh it did feel like it took a while for the for the for the, the mind to almost m mature and i think for a lot of people it, it can take that that sort of time so what would you see in, in, a, in someone who had been reborn having already achieved some form of enlightenment when somebody's reborn that is attained the two stages the the stream enter or the the once returner you're not going to immediately see something because they're not re-entering in that same stage of enlightenment. So if you leave as a stream enterer, you're not coming back immediately as a stream enterer. You still have to work your way through to become a higher stage of enlightenment. So you're still going to be reborn with the same craving, anger, and ignorance or greed, hatred, and delusion, the same concept of a self, the ego, all that stuff's still going to be present. But one of the things that you can observe in children who have practiced these teachings in the past is you'll notice less discontentness. So you'll notice children, babies, infants that don't cry very much, even at the infancy stage, you'll notice that they're somewhat content, but still they haven't been reborn at the same stage of enlightenment. They're still unenlightened. They're coming into the world as a new birth, completely new mind, a completely new, new body, but they tend to not as cry as often, they're very content. If they experience physical pain, it tends to not bother them as much. Uh, so they can get, you know, like whacked over the head with a bat and just not bother them or just very little crying. But at that moment, at eight years old or 10 years old, it doesn't mean that they're enlightened because they're not even practicing the teachings perhaps at that point. It just could potentially mean doesn't absolutely mean, but it could potentially mean that they have practiced at some point in the past. They still have to go through all the same trials and tribulations of a human birth. So this is why with Carol's question, we don't want to assume that, okay, we're just going to get to the stream enter or the once returner and be okay with that. Not that Carol said that, but some people you know, think that way. They're like, okay, my goal is just to get to the first stage of enlightenment and then I'm okay with that. But still that person's going to have to be reborn and go through all the same trials and tribulations again. So everyone's focus should be on attaining the stage of an arahant because then you're done, you're done, you're done, never coming back to the world again. And even if we observe a baby or a toddler or a teenager who's more content and calm and peaceful, they still have to go through all the work. It's just not going to be as hard for them because they've already kind of practiced in the past. But they still have so, to do all the same work. So many aspects of their conditioning would remain, but they still have to learn and encounter the teachings and, and then put that into practice. To, over, to, to extinguish the remaining fetters. Right. They're essentially going to not be born into the world with as much craving. So craving is the fuel that leads to the next rebirth. So if somebody's already extinguished a good amount of craving and have attained the first or second stage of enlightenment, when they're reborn back into the human world, they're going to have less craving, which means they're going to have less discontentedness as part of their new birth. So they have less to work through, but they still have craving in there. They still have the three poisons. They just have less of it, and it's not as strongly rooted as someone else who's maybe made it into the human world, but 
it's say their first birth. They've never been reborn in the human birth before. They're just coming out of the animal realm. Then they're going to have a strong amount of craving, lots of hostility, lots of anger, lots of ego, lots of discontentness. And it's going to be so much harder for that person to work through to get to any stage of enlightenment because they're just coming out of the animal realm and very hard for them. Back to what Carol was saying, which was more of her point, was, geez, if I just practice this good enough and I get a lot of build up, a lot of good gamma in this life, yeah, when I am reborn, I'll be better off. And the answer is absolutely, you'll be better off. But as a teacher, I would want to focus you on arahant and getting to that stage and pursuing Nibbana as a goal, as an interest. Sometimes you'll find people that have a strong craving or desire to actually attain Nibbana. They actually have this strong eagerness or this longing for Nibbana. And as long as you have that, you're not going to attain Nibbana. You have to actually extinguish the craving, the desire, the uh, eagerness to even attain enlightenment. You need to pursue it as a goal, as an interest, as an objective, and just work each day in that direction and even don't even have a, a, a craving or an attachment to Nibbana. And uh, just, yeah, if I need to be reborn, okay, I will be, but I really am not interested in being reborn. But if it happens, it happens. But my real goal, my real interest, my real objective is to end this whole state of rebirth and get to Arahant, be fully enlightened. And in doing so, just be content with that. I don't need to tell anybody about it. I don't need to make sure everyone knows about it because for sure, if that's my interest, I haven't really attained it anyway. So just go about your, your work, go about your life, go about your personal life, your work life. And to one thing that Roberto said is there's never really a point where you can draw a line and you can say, okay, here I was a stream enter. Here's the date that I became a once returner. Here's the date that I became a non-returner. Here's the date that I became an Arahant. Because these fetters are extinguishing just like that light or the candle that I talked about, they're kind of flickering. You never really kind of know 100% of where did it fully extinguish. Because you can go for three, four, six months and then boom, it crops back up again. So there's not really this hard line of, when you attain each individual state of enlightenment. But anyone who's attained enlightenment as an Arahant can actually question somebody and how that person responds to the question. We can determine with pretty good certainty what stage of enlightenment you're in right now, but we wouldn't be able to tell you when you actually attained that, at which date, because there's not a hard, fast line of when you have or haven't attained it but we could tell you where you're at right now. And in fact, some of the stories from the Buddhist time in, in the text, you can see people who are on their deathbed who are practicing and close students of the Buddha and his other students were asking lots of questions to try to figure out what stage of enlightenment this person was in before they actually died. And then those students would rush to the Buddha and ask the Buddha, um, you know, what stage of enlightenment was he in? We thought he was in this stage. We thought he was in that stage. Is he going to be reborn? Is he not going to be reborn? And for the first few, 
the Buddha actually gave an answer and he told them what stage that person was in. But then he kind of admonished them and he said, if whenever, every time somebody dies, if you guys come to me and ask me what stage of enlightenment they're in, you know, you're never going to get to the teachings for you to attain enlightenment because you're too busy trying to figure out what stage other people are in when they die. What you should really be focused on is your own enlightenment, not what somebody else is when they actually die. So he answered it a few times, but then he stopped answering those questions. And you understand why, because he was interested in focusing people on them attaining enlightenment rather than worrying about where somebody else is in their path. But we can determine through asking questions uh, with somebody. And, uh, but we never tell you. We're never going to tell you what stage we might think you're necessarily in because then the ego starts getting interested in that. Then there's pride as part of that. But as teachers, as we question you and we start to understand this, then we just kind of catalog that in our mind so that then we can help you with teachings to further you along. Because our goal is to see as many people get to Arahant as possible because that's very good for you. It's very good for the people around you. And it's very good for humanity to have more and more and more people attain Arahantship. Thank you. That's really helpful. We have a couple more questions here. So Karen asks, so if many life-changing events occur in life at the same time, are these presented to us to learn some lessons or challenge where we are on the path? Absolutely. Uh, each individual uh, situation that happens, there's learning there. I always say that Gamma is the very best unbiased teacher. So if somebody close to you dies and you feel sad or you feel guilty or shameful or even angry, you haven't done anything wrong. This is why it's important that you never look at the Buddhist teachings as right or wrong. You haven't done anything wrong in that situation. But what you should be doing there, what I would suggest you do and encourage you to do is notice how your mind still has attachment in that person's death brought to the surface some discontentness. Or if your house burns down, or if your dog is getting ready to die, or you lose your job, or whatever it is, and you notice that the mind becomes discontent because of it, it's a good lesson for you to see that, aha, there's still discontentness there, there's still attachment, I'm still training the mind. Um, if you see that you're angry and frustrated, that should show you, aha, I need more loving kindness because as you hear, that's going to be the antidote to this poison of hatred or th this fetter of ill will. So all of these life situations and the discontentness that is arising to the mind are indicators of what's still going on in the mind. And this is where having a really good relationship with a teacher that you trust, that you can ring them up, you can ask for some time and you can be like, hey, this is what I experienced. And you can feel completely at ease knowing that that teacher isn't going to share anything with anyone else. You can trust that teacher that they're going to guide you and help you. They're not going to judge you. They're not going to make you feel guilty. They're not going to make you feel shameful. Uh, part of this path that we haven't talked about is trusting other beings. So just trusting your teacher can be a way of helping you to trust others. And 
sharing what's going on in these life situations, uh, whether it's your own death, the death of other people, death of dogs or loved ones, jobs, uh, things that you're, that you're eliminating. Like I've had students tell me that they want to eliminate pornography, that they watch porn movies four or five times a week, that they masturbate 10, 20 times a day. I just hear it, I listen to it, and I help them without sharing that with anybody, without judging them, without making them feel guilty or shameful. And they feel that they can trust and share this with me. And then the only thing that's gonna come back is guidance to help them work on eliminating that. So yes, these big events that you have in life, there's learning lessons in there. And I encourage students to reflect on that as much as they can and learn on their own. And then when they feel like they've learned as much as they can learn, and they're looking for an outside perspective, that's where you look to other members of the community. And that's what these virtual classrooms are really great about is you guys can now start to get to know each other. And yes, you can talk to me, your teacher, but you also can maybe ring up Max or Roberto or Carol or James or Amina or, or each other. And you can say, hey, you know, what are your thoughts on this? But only do that after you've taken the time to do your own reflection and your own learning yourself and then reach out to other people and get their perspective and that also helps not only with you trusting other people but it also helps with shyness as well because that's another thing that needs to be eliminated as part of this path you know i've been places where i've seen thai people stand up and you know and amongst two three four five thousand people you'll see somebody grab the microphone and say to the monk my husband's cheating on me he has two girlfriends and I know that he's having sex with all of them and it makes me feel horrible inside. And I don't know what to do about this. And they have eliminated that shyness to be able to say things like that, where in Western culture, we probably wouldn't say things like that in front of two, three, four, five thousand people because we feel like it's somehow making us look bad. But if we eliminate that shyness and we eliminate that self and we just look for the learning lessons, you can start to share more openly uh, about personal situations and you can work on trust, you can work on shyness, you can get the, the lessons that you really need to really move you forward. I'm always open for one-on-one -on -one talks and I'm sure other people on this, uh, in this classroom probably are as well, but there's always learning lessons in all of this and the more community that you have with other people that are practicing the path it's nice to get advice from mom or dad or people who aren't on the path it's interesting to talk to those people but people who are on the path tend to really help you reflect and a good listener is going to listen to what you're saying and they're never going to tell you what to think in those situations they're never gonna tell you what to do in certain situations. When these life catastrophes happen, a good listener is gonna listen and then just give you some things to think about and not tell you what to do. And that's what I do as a teacher, is I just listen to the students about what they're experiencing and then I just share certain things in the Buddhist teachings to help them think and reflect further. I never give a student an answer I never tell them what to do. I never give them a step-by-step -step instructions of what they should do in a given situation. I just give them things to think about and further reflection. 
And that's what a good listener, a good member of a community would do is just listen and then share thoughts that help you deepen your thinking and deepen your reflection without actually telling you what to do in any given situation. Okay, so Roberto asks, awareness of negative mental and physical habits has heightened during his practice. What is your experience of managing this occurrence? Yeah, this is one, like when you first start practicing or and you start, you know, progressing on the path, you, you really notice negativity in others. You really notice harshness because you're working so much on your own to eliminate that and you see it in other people. What I suggest is, you know, definitely don't judge them because we were all there at one time in our life as well. Don't judge them. Have uh, compassion for them. Compassion is concern for others' misfortune. Have a lot of compassion for them that they are in this situation and they aren't seeing a way out. They don't even know about these teachings. They don't even know that they're causing their own suffering, their own discontentness, their own problems in life. You know, just learning non-attachment is really important because as we start practicing this path, our compassion and our loving kindness starts to increase. So oftentimes the first thing that we want to do is jump in there and help this person with some teachings that's going to improve their state of mind. But oftentimes that's the last thing that person wants. So learning how to be unattached to somebody else's negativity is really important because you're, the more that you're working on your own mind, you're going to see it in other people and you're going to see more and more and more of it. So this practice of non-attachment, the more that you practice, the more you're going to observe, the more you need to practice so that you don't attach to others, their discontentness, their negativity, and the problems and complaining that they have. There's lots of different right answers. You know, you may decide to walk away. You may decide to offer them some advice. You may decide to come back another day, talk to them another day. There's lots of different right things to do. But the wrong thing to do is allow your mind to be, become discontent just because somebody else is discontent or complaining or negative. So you really need to learn to practice non-attachment. And the more you work on that and develop that for your own mind, you'll get better and better at doing that with other people. When you're in environments where you don't have relationships with people, it tends to be easier, right? Like when you're child or your partner comes home and they're sad or they're angry because of your attachment to them it's really easy for your mind to jump in there and be discontent along with them so while you need to practice non-attachment with those people close to you and learn to get better and better at that sometimes the best way to learn it is to go into environments where you have no attachment no relationship with anybody at all and be in environments where people are complaining, disgruntled, upset, and practice non-attachment and see how your mind can reside peaceful, calm, and content even in situations where other people aren't, where other people are negative and complaining. And it's easier to do that when you don't have relationships with people. So sometimes, you know, we talk about training the mind. A lot of times people talk about just meditation but that's only one component of the training of your mind. 
you actually need to put the mind in situations that you might otherwise be discontent and kind of uncondition your mind. So if you're having problems with people's negativity or people's complaining or people's anger and that's rubbing off on you, that's probably because your attachment to those people. So I would suggest you go put the mind in an environment where you're not attached to people, but there's still that anger, hostility, discontentness, and train your mind to be content there where you don't have attachment so that then when you bring it back into environments where you do have attachment, it's going to be much easier for you. And you're probably going to have to go to that environment where there's not attachment multiple times. It's not just a one-time thing. You go and train your mind and you're done. You probably have to go to that environment multiple times and practice non-attachment and get better and better and better at it and then get better at it in situations where there is still some attachment with like partners and children, family members, things like this. So training your mind is sometimes putting it in environments where it could potentially become discontent, but practice all the way up until your mind is almost discontent and then maybe leave the situation, calm down a bit, come back two or three days later and see how your mind's improving. Now you can exist in that environment longer and longer and longer and now it's almost discontent again, leave again, and then come back. So this is the mind kind of putting it in situations where you're training it to be content and calm and peaceful in any and all situations. Not just meditation, but situations where it might otherwise get discontent. All right, well, we seem to have no more questions at this time. Okay, well, I didn't have any expectation of how long today's class was going to go, but it looks like it's a little bit over two hours, which isn't a good thing, which isn't a bad thing. It's just, it just is what it is. I'm really pleased that you guys had as many questions as you did. I think that's only shows that you guys are definitely not believing anything. You're reflecting on this stuff. You're thinking about it. You're processing it and, and you have an interest to know. So as long as you guys are asking questions and interested, you know, I'll continue to teach and share information with you. I don't know that each one of our classes are going to be this amount of time, but if they are, then I'm completely fine with that because my interest and my goal is just to help you guys on this path. So if you guys need these times, I'm not going to ever cut us off. It's essentially when you guys are done with questions, that's when the class is over. So I schedule this class to start at nine o'clock Thai time and it finishes when, whenever it needs to finish. So I want to thank you guys for joining. I want to thank you guys for your dedication, your commitment to learning and practicing these teachings. It really is an amazing, amazing journey to learn these teachings and train the mind in this way and ultimately get to a point where you no longer experience sadness and guilt and loneliness and boredom and shame, shyness, where you can trust all beings, where you can have loving kindness for all beings and compassion, where other people's pain and misery doesn't affect you. You have concern for them. You're interested in seeing them be well and be peaceful, but it doesn't cause your mind to be discontent. It's an amazing, amazing thing that the Buddha has provided us in his teachings to be able to 
get to this permanent peaceful mind, this permanent calm, this permanent serenity, this permanent content mind with joy. It really is something very special. And I'm glad to see that you guys are on this journey and that you're pursuing it. So all the questions that you have this week, it's great that we got started here on this uh, session. But as you think this week, throughout the week, if more questions come to the surface, that's why this whole week is focused in the Facebook group to what is enlightenment, what is Nibbana. So you can post your questions into the group in order to get more help with this. Be sure if you haven't already read the chapter that you read the chapter in the book. And there's also a little quiz in the Facebook group to just confirm for you that you've learned what it is that you need to learn. So maybe Friday or Saturday of this week, think about taking that little quiz. I don't look at the scores, but it's just for you to confirm that you learned what you needed to learn. So by coming to class, by reading the chapter, by doing meditation throughout the week, asking any questions that arise, and taking that little quiz, you can then move into next week, the Four Noble Truths, really confirmed in your understanding that you understand what enlightenment is. You haven't experienced it. You may be not able to articulate it 100%, but at least you have an image in the mind of this goal that you're headed towards, this objective that you're headed towards, this interest that you're pursuing. Because we can attain enlightenment in our life and we can attain it at death. Those are the two times that we can attain it. But by applying dedication and effort and energy to attaining enlightenment during your life, then the rest of your life is very peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It can be attained at death as well, and that person won't be reborn back into the world. But their entire life, they experience anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, all these discontent feelings like guilt and shame. So they never really got to experience a human life of peacefulness, of calmness, of serenity, of contentness with joy. So by you actually applying effort to learn and practice these teachings, should you not attain enlightenment, then you're going to be reborn into a better existence in your next birth. But should you attain enlightenment during this life, you're going to experience the rest of your life in a very peaceful mind, which is going to be very enjoyable with lots of joy for you. So I'm glad to see that you guys are on the path and looking forward to continuing to help you. Just let me know how I can help you, uh, whether it's in these classes or a one-on-one -on -one talk. And just want to thank you guys for joining. And I'll see you guys uh, on Wednesday if you would like to join in the same classroom, the virtual classroom, where on Wednesdays we just talk about meditation and anything that's going on in your meditation practice. So we kind of carve out Wednesday just for that. And these Sundays are for the full chapter talks discussing the entire chapter. So thank you guys for joining. Have a great week. I'll see you guys online and uh, have a very wonderful, enjoyable day. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. 
To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.